back to another episode of Laser Graves. I'm your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hey, Eck, I'm Mariah Rose. How you doing? <laughs> you went back to just not trying. Yeah, that's where I'm at now. It's because all your focus was on researching other things this week. Mm-hmm. This was a lot of work. Yes, we've been working on this since we were born. It's true. It's our, our, our epic ending to our life. This will be what everything was based on. It's ongoing, yes. Yeah. Etched it's... into our tombstones. No thanks, actually. Really big tombstones. No thanks. If this is your first time listening, welcome to Laser Graves. We are a podcast about the 80s, because we discuss 80s stuff. Mm-hmm. We've come from that place, and we're bringing it to you now. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> this uh, proved to be a lot more research than I thought, because I they're kind of on the surface of one-hit wonder, and I thought this would be a little easy breezy, but uh, they were way more complicated than I was expecting. They're mysterious. They are mysterious. Well, and they're just interesting people. So... This week we're talking about a duo from Scotland. It was very short-lived, but they put out this incredible album that just took everybody by surprise, and then they were gone. Just as fast as they arrived, they were gone. And so we were wanting to know more about them, and that was kind of the point of this podcast when we started it, was to find interesting topics or figures from the 80s, and then just educate ourselves on them. This group falls perfectly in that category. So if you have not heard about them, I hope that you enjoy this episode and learn something. Yeah, welcome. We did all the work for you. You're so lazy. <laughs> yeah, you can join our Patreon at <laughs> patreon.com slash lasergraves. No, this week we are headed overseas, like I said, to Scotland to discuss the pop duo, but they were much more like post-punk synth pop, I would say. Very interesting, both visually and musically. We're talking about Strawberry Switchblade. think of the name strawberry switchblade it's pretty cool we'll get to it like where it came from why even if it fits it fits yeah it definitely fits well how did we get there i guess let's just kind of get started on how that even came to be oh so we're gonna go way back like way way back way back we're not even we're going back farther than the 80s because before we can learn about strawberry switchblade we got to meet our members. Okay. So uh, let's familiarize ourselves with Jill Bryson and Rose McDowell. Jill and Rose were born in Glasgow, so they're both from Glasgow, Scotland. Okay. Um, they grew up on different sides of the city, and you can take that as you will, but basically... Just like uh, in America, we would say, you know, we were born on different sides of the tracks. Yes. Think of it in that light. Mm-hmm. They, they come from different, different worlds, even though they're in the same city. So they didn't exactly grow up together. And just a little bit about the time in which they were born. Um, Rose was actually born in the, the last year of the 50s, and Jill was born in 61. So... At this time, England was having their, what I 
in my mind is the Austin Powers like swinging sixties. <laughs> Pretty much, that is all I think of England at the, in the sixties. Okay, cool. Just go with so that's it. That's where we're at. I presume it's fact, one hundred percent. And let's let's not focus on that. But the same was not happening in Scotland okay. at the time. So there was a really high unemployment rate that was impacting, uh, you know, everyone. People were fighting for wages, but there was a lot going on. If you want to look into it, this isn't the place for that. How weird of you to come looking here. (laughs) Yeah, what were you thinking? (laughs) What kind of person are you? But there was a lot going on, and there was also a growing sense of nationalism, which you will actually see reflected if you watch interviews with these two women, because they do emphasize that they're Scottish. Yeah, well... I, I think so. And also because when we get into how they got their break and, and started was they were supported by a lot of um, Scottish people around them that were believing them. So they yes. they were kind of homegrown. Yes, I agree. And so they grew up in the 60s, but that was like their childhood was the 60s. But their teen years, which we all know your transformative years, mm-hmm. happened in the 70s. Their adulthood, early adulthood, is the 80s. So think about those three decades. And if you were going to take a little sampler plate of all of them, this is the perfect landing place because these two women have given us all three decades. That's true. I hadn't really thought about Mm -hmm. that. They really do capture all three perfectly and equally. Yeah. So, okay. And when you listen to your music, you'll see the, the, or listen to their music, you'll, you'll see or hear the 60s. For sure, and yeah. the 80s. But the punk scene had a huge impact. It was really spreading at the time that these women met. They were actually girls at the time. They were teenagers. What were they, like 15, 16, somewhere around there? Something like that. I didn't yeah. make an exact note of their age. But they met at a club. Mm-hmm. They called it a disco because they're Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> They met at a club in Glasgow. They hadn't grown up together, but they saw each other, liked each other's style, and made friends with each other. Uh, But like I said, they'd grown up on different in different parts of the city, so they came from very different backgrounds. But regardless, they became fast friends and were really inspired by the exploding punk scene that was happening at that time. So think about it. You have all of these, obviously the Sex Pistols had spread. They're not from Glasgow, of course, but their influence had spread. And there were bands popping up in Scotland, like the New Sonics, who later became Orange Juice. And obviously both girls loved the New York Dolls. They were really into this scene, this like alternative punk scene that was happening at that time. It was perfect for them because they were able to see artists or musicians who had no formal training coming up, performing, and, you know, just creating music that spoke to their peers. So around this time, Rose started playing in sort of an art punk band called The Poems, and she'd gotten married. So we've transitioned out of teen years into young adulthood. She was still a teen when she had a baby. Was she? Yeah, I think she was still a teen because um, Jill talked about her, you know, walking around with a baby and stuff like that. Gosh, I thought she was 20, but... No, they met after she was already in The Poems um, by the time they met, and I know that... You know, 
Rose talked about seeing like the Ramones and stuff like yep. that. And yeah, they were both just in the scene, but I think Rose was a little bit, I didn't know she was older, but that makes sense now mm-hmm. because she seemed like she was already a little just a bit couple more years established. Older. And Jill talked about in interviews I, I heard knowing Rose, like she was like a character around town and well, they, they knew who she was. Yeah. And if you think about it, like think about your your early teen years, there are circles that you run with and people that you interact with. It's not like these two women were the very best of friends who grew up together and made a band. No, they like kind of knew each other and they became friends and then they worked on a project together. And they also had very different personalities, which will come into play once they form a group together. But upon first meeting, they they were a little different, you know. um, Yeah. Especially Rose came from when you talked about them being kind of on different parts of the town. Rose grew up in a very poor part of town, extremely poor. Her, Her neighborhood was super violent. And she talked a lot about this is something that kind of defines her. And she talks about a lot is. You know, she saw her her brother was murdered when he was a child and her father was like hit in the head with an axe and all this stuff. Like she just saw a lot of brutality and a lot of um, the darker side of things. And that really informed her so that by the time they met, although they were both in the punk scene, I think they were in it for different reasons. Like I think that Rose was a little bit more trying to find her way and a little lost. And I think that Jill was just more... Uh, of the artsy type that wanted to just be around live music and and meet interesting people. And that's one of the great things about the arts in general is that they do bring people together from all walks of life. I read this uh, quote many years ago, so I have no idea where I heard it, but essentially what it said was that the art, uh, the artist, whatever type of artist, has to be able to work with you know the lowest level of society to the highest level of society, and that's one of the amazing things about artists. And I see that in reflected in these two. Yeah, and also their interests. You know, so they had a, a shared interest in punk music, but mm-hmm. they also, more importantly, had a shared interest, as you mentioned, in '60s kind of. Girl bands and Mamas and the Papas and all this stuff, which once you know and you listen to their album, you go, whoa, that's where all those vocal harmonies and stuff are coming from, because that's what they were mimicking and trying to learn from. But also keep in mind, they were both artsy kids and they loved bands like the Velvet Underground was a huge influence on them. So Mm -hmm. they it, it makes sense that they would have gravitated towards each other. You know, they were in the same town running into the same you know people so yeah. it was inevitable that they were going to end up hooking hooking up together yeah but meanwhile jill she was attending an art school and completed a, an art degree in mixed media so they definitely came from different realities i don't think that that yeah. was maybe accessible to rose at that time yeah and one of the the great parts about her going to school was that she started school and then they started the band and she was afraid she wouldn't be able to finish school because the band was taking off. We're getting a little ahead. But what I like is that if you look at the images of her final project or senior project to graduate, uh, Rose is her model in all of the shots. So she mm-hmm. helped her finish it. And I like that. I feel like they were in it together and they you know, agreed like, don't give up on school, but let's not give up on the band. Let's just kind of do it all together. And I think that makes sense in the punk kind of mentality is 
people who don't feel like they belong anywhere else, but they find each other and they help each other through. So it, I just feel like this is the beginning of the foundation of their relationship that would make sense that they were going to navigate these crazy waters that was about to come, but they were going to do it together. Yeah. And I think it's also important. We get hung up on relationships and, you know, spoiler alert, we don't actually know what their relationship is or was um, after a certain point. But I think that it's important to remember that some relationships are in your life for a season, mm-hmm. an important season. It doesn't make them any less potent or powerful. So regardless of the future of this band, um, <laughs> I, I think it's important to re- remember that because I think this was one of those friendships that is a very short season, but a very powerful season for both women. And it, you know, sent them off on their own personal life journeys after this. Absolutely. And they really needed each other to get to that next phase of their life. Yes. Okay. So both women, they're in the scene and, uh, I actually watched an, a different interview with them, and they were talking about how the punk scene had made music so accessible to them as untrained musicians. They were both inclined, but didn't have any formal training. So they just kind of decided that they were going to start their own band. Obviously, Rose, as I mentioned, had been performing with the poems, but Jill had pretty much no musical experience. So she decided to grab a guitar and she was like, well, if the punks are doing it, I can learn a, yeah. few, learn a few chords and we'll be in a band. <laughs> so that's what she did. She learned yeah. a few chords and was ready to go. It's great. You know, she talked about that and she learned a couple 60 songs. Like I learned two chords and, and then we had a song. And on Rose's end, she played drums for the poems and she played them standing up because they wanted to be like the Velvet Underground. This was like an avant-garde band. Yeah. And so she also did not want to be doing that anymore. She wanted to sing. So that's where they were like, you know what, let's just kind of do our own thing. And so they were both learning on the spot together, which I think is a really safe place to be is around friends. You can fail and you can also grow. Yes. And that's what they did. So they were very plugged into the Glasgow scene at the time. Obviously, how could they not be? Uh, the Scottish band Orange Juice, formerly the New Sonics, they were pl- planning to release a live flexi disc song called Fel- Felicity, and they had planned to release an additional like fanzine to promote this release. And that was supposed to be called Strawberry Switchblade, mm. but it kind of fell apart. I guess Strawberry Switchblade was taken from a song written by James Kirk, who's, okay, who's right. from Orange Juice. So that project, for whatever reason, and there is a real reason, just research it yourself. But <laughs> We got a lot to get through. Yeah, they, yeah. They, that didn't come to fruition. So he allowed Rose to use that, the Strawberry Switchblade for the band, which honestly, it's perfect. It is. So they were given the name by James Kirk, and initially they were actually an all-female four-piece, not the duo that we will come to know and love. So it started out as Rose and Jill, but a woman named Janice Goodlett on bass and Carol McGowan on drums. But they were really pretty much just quickly pared down to Rose and Jill. Yeah, they played a few shows and they yeah. recorded a little, but it was it was clear that they just needed to kind of get back to the two of them. Yes. Well, they continued to kind of 
craft their sound, write a few songs, and all the songs they were writing early on would make their way onto the album. Like, they didn't really get rid of any songs. That's shocking to me. When you think about, like, starting a band, especially with no training. Yes. Yeah. It it is interesting. And even from the early demos, even though they're rough, you can already hear. And this is one of the things that I do like about critics that talk about them now reflecting on is that take away all the production of their album and you've got at the core really great songs. Mm -hmm. And it's because they were written with a guitar and two people just sitting around figuring out how to write music. So there was a foundation they were building on. They were starting to play shows and stuff like that. But where their story starts to really take off from just being, you know, two local women writing, you know, songs for their friends was that one day John Peel, the legendary radio personality who everybody who's anybody has been involved with in the UK, heard them play a show that he had hosted in Scotland and invited them afterwards because he was so impressed. And he invited them personally to go on and record a Peel session on October 1st, 1982. So this was a major break for them. Huge. Because if you get a Peel session, you're going to be heard. Because yeah. he liked to kind of be responsible for recognizing new talent and have a little bit of, you know, yeah. a name in that. Also, at the very same time, though, there was another personality, David Kid Jensen, who had Radio 1 and also liked to showcase people. And they both approached them at the same time and they agreed to do it. So what they did was they had about six songs and they just split them between the two shows (laughs) and went on both. And so it was like things were finally going to start happening. They did get some friends from... The Glasgow scene, I think one of the guys from Horns Juice was was playing in the band to record these sessions. Yeah. And uh, they aired, and they were pretty impressive right away. They were pretty stripped down, that kind of going back to that Velvet Underground influence. But they still had at the core of it, you could hear where they were headed as far as their, their future sound. So after hearing this Peel session, two guys, Bill Drummond, who was later in the the group KLF, and a keyboardist named David Baffle heard these sessions and offered to become the group's manager because they like to to manage Strawberry Switchblade because they thought they had a lot of potential. Mm -hmm. This was a big deal. And what they did was they booked some time and got their first single recorded, which was Trees and Flowers. Great song. It's actually an interesting song. It's a a personal song for Jill, which we haven't discussed yet. This song was about her being agoraphobic, which was a major problem for her. She had actually spent an entire year inside refusing to go out and go to school or anything because she had this fear that had developed. And so, and she struggled with this throughout her early adult life, definitely during the time of the band. But that's what this song was about. And they decided to release it as their first single in July of 1983 on this indie label called 92 Happy Customers that was run by a guy from Echo and the Bunnymen. So they were already starting to get people in their corner. Big names. Big names. And this first single alone sold over 10,000 copies. Wow. So with those kind of sales, you're going to get more attention. And Drummond managed to work 
in a record deal for them. So they got signed onto Corova, which was overseen by Warner Music Group, and they were now ready to start working on an album. They got a band back together like they had originally, and they started just playing shows and stuff like that because the intent was to record a traditional album. But right before they were about to go into the studio, there was a recommendation that maybe they drop the band once again mm-hmm. and go back to just the two of them. So they did. Well, we're back at, like we're in the 80s now. So yep. you don't need a band. Who needs a band? You need a board. You need a guitar is what you need. I do need a guitar. Thank you for noticing. <laughs> so they went to London. They got some studio time, and they were introduced to a very pivotal character in their story, a a very young producer named David Motion, who took the two of them, listened to their demos, and said, okay, I'm going to do some arrangements. So when you hear Strawberry Switchblade's album, they wrote all the music, but David is the guy behind the curtain who was doing all the programming and arranging and instrumentation and stuff which was both very fascinating and gave them a really fresh sound that influenced a lot of bands to come after them, mm-hmm. but also was way different than the sound that they had been developing, which was more of a kind of folksy indie sound. So the big thing that he was against was guitars, which was Jill's instrument. Who's and against guitars? He was wanted to embrace this new sound of the 80s. You know, synth pop was all the rage, so he... Sure, but don't be against a traditional instrument. Well, I mean, it proved to be a good choice for them. I don't know. <laughs> well, time will tell, right? <laughs> but this is interesting to note that basically they brought all these demos and then this one guy alone really changed their sound. They did work closely together to get this sound, and I think that they were just so fresh-faced... They were dealing with a a record label and money that they just went along with it. They were like, sure, okay. Keep in mind, this is now happening in rapid speed. Like, this is, they're on the fast track now because they got signed to a big label. Yeah, I kind of imagine 80s labels as, like, uh, car dealers. Like, come on, come on, I gotta sign here, I gotta sign here, quick, quick here. I'm gonna give it to these guys over here. They're from New Jersey. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, except they all had Scottish accents and British <laughs> accents. <laughs> I don't even know what accent that was. Go ahead. Okay, but by October of 84, they are going to release the next single, which is Since Yesterday, which if you know this band, this is the song you know, because this became their claim to fame. It was a very poppy tune, which was later revealed. A lot of people didn't know what this song was about, but years and years later, Rose said that the lyrics were about the idea of raising a child in a nuclear war era and if they survived this is what would happen and so this is important because the thing about their band and why their name fits them so well is that on the exterior they have this very bubbly shiny colorful look and image and sound like a strawberry like a strawberry but their their lyrics and their content is often very dark this is where they're rooted in more of the post-punk and kind of goth thing the lyrics are pretty dark overall. Like They're a just switchblade. Like a switchblade. They're just very sugar-coated. Yeah. We should talk about their image, speaking of. So okay. this is the other big claim to fame for this band. It's not only their music, but their image is something else. So I heard several people, like interviewers, describe their look. Mm-hmm. Have you heard that? 
Only He's, one that made me laugh, which was the female boy George. I heard it so many okay. times. It's, it's kind of spot on, though. It's exactly right. But the fle- female boy George, but with polka dots. Lots of polka dots. Lots of ribbons. So many ribbons. So the term that later got associated with them, and they are credited with being one of the like creators of, is Gothic Lolita, which is oh. this really furly kind of dresses and tights and ribbons and flowers in your hair, but all with a very gothic tinge. It's all black and white and thick eyeliner. You know, you've got to think of that kind of Susie and the Banshees style eyeliner. And Well, they described it as romantic, and I thought that yeah. was probably better. Because the Lolita, first of all, Lolita conjures up underage imagery that's kind of like gross and cringy, but they're adult women doing their best 80s romantic goth situation with polka dots so about their their look Mm -hmm. this came up constantly to the point of like this started to become a problem with them because all the attention was on their looks because not Mm -hmm. only are they just the outfits are pretty fun and wild yes but they're both very attractive women so of course everybody's going to be drawn to them on the surface and it started to bother them Especially because they already had this look. When they were back in Scotland as a local band, this is just how they dressed. And they developed it together. And if you look at Jill's senior thesis in a way for art school, this is how they were dressing already. So it wasn't like this was created by the record label. This was no. their thing that they brought to, to the pop scene. Actually, you mentioned that. And that bothered me a lot because every single interview I watched with them started out first talking about how they looked, then transitioning to the music. Now listen, you wear some fabulous clothes. Do you make all these yourselves? They have been described as looking like Boy George's sisters with rather outlandish clothes and makeup, but their music has also gained them recognition. Listen, you're looking great. You look absolutely super. Stand up, give us a twirl. Let's have a look. They wouldn't have done this if this were a man. And then I... Actually, I got real feminist about it and real angry (laughs) and started, like, writing my notes. And then I thought, okay, so I'm going to have to come up with some counterpoints here. And I thought of um, male artists who had a big look. Like, obviously their look's big. So I kind of tried to think of their contemporaries or predecessors who had a big look and I went and searched interviews on people like Elton John and Boy George. Guess what? Hmm. They ask about their look first. It's really over the top so it is kind of a starter point but I don't know if this is me reading between the lines but when you see those interviews you can read the body language of them being kind of like well we write music you know. Yep. Granted, they have this look, but I think that they didn't really see it as a gimmick as much as that was just a, their a thing. form of self-expression. Yeah, so maybe they weren't quite prepared for that. They this all happened really fast. Yeah, another thing to consider is that both of these women, yes, they had a look, but they were promoting their music, not their fashion. So if they had designed a fashion line and somebody asked them about their music, they would have been like, well, yeah, I do that too. It's great, but we're here to talk about this. Yeah. So I think that, I agree, you can definitely see in their body language, like they even sometimes make eye contact, like, great, here Mm -hmm. comes this question. Let's get past it. Yeah, and I would say Jill's a little bit more gracious with the interviews. I'd say Rose does not um, hide her 
her disgust very well because she's a little bit more rough around the edges, but yeah. you can tell they're both kind of annoyed. Getting back to the subject, though, so since yesterday is about to break onto the scene, this is going to be their massive shift mm-hmm. into pop culture. Like I said, October 1984, it comes out. It's also accompanied by a fun music video with all these polka dots and imagery. The video was done by Tim Pope, which you may know that name. He's I know it very well. Because he is synonymous with The Cure. Yeah. So Tim Pope is responsible for, I think now, 37 Cure videos. Calm down, that's his, Tim. That's their go-to. He also did, he directed the feature, uh, The Cure in Orange, which mm-hmm. is an amazing live performance that they did. So Tim Pope came on to do the video, which is really fun, classic 80s. So you've got this kind of double, you know, this great pop song with an amazing look, great music video comes onto the scene kind of a little stale at first. This is October. Slowly starts to build, but by December, it has worked its way up to the top 10. And then we get into January of 1985. Now, why it seems like we're really going over every detail is because they only were around for like a year, essentially, at the core. So by January 85, they broke into not only the top 10, but they got all the way up to number five with Since Yesterday. That's crazy. This is within just, you know, a year or two ago, Jill was still finishing her art degree. So this all happened at just like breakneck speed. And to top it all off, where, where can you go? What's the pinnacle of a British artist in the 80s? Well, not only the 80s, but leading up to it. Top of the Pops. Yep. And they got invited to come on to Top of the Pops. So this is kind of unreal how fast this all happened. Yeah, and I think that as Americans, we don't really understand what Top of the Pops w- was to people. But as I kind of understand it, is basically everybody watched it, like, ac- oh. across the country. It was kind of yeah. like, briefly, like, maybe MTV Unplugged or... Even TRL, where people would just tune in because it was one of the few selections. Yeah, it's basically like you're, you're, nobody will not know who you are yeah. if you're on top of the pops. It's kind of the ultimate goal of every band at the time if you wanted to break into the mainstream. So they get invited onto top of the pops January 24th, 1985. Now, before we get into that, I wanted to play a little clip because I thought this would be interesting of. Since Yesterday, which was originally a demo called Dance that they did for one of those sessions. Remember, I told you they did a session with John Peel. They also did that other one with David Jensen. So they performed Dance on the David Jensen session. Here's a little clip of this is when they were a four-piece band, just a guitar-driven band, of what the song sounded like. We've arrived at a major record label deal. We've arrived with a big producer that has gone over and changed their entire sound to be this 80s synth sound. And they now have a number five hit in the UK. And they're going on to Top of the Pops. And here we go. Right now, live on Top of the Pops, here comes Strawberry Switchblade.
so pretty interesting development. You can you can see how it has been commercialized. Yep. Uh, it's still there at the core, which I do love. It's not like they didn't have a hand in it, but they are now, there's no turning back. They are known in England. They are going to be known worldwide very shortly. But t- before we move on past this really amazing moment of their career, when Top of the Pops aired, they were actually on the road and they said that they stopped at a local pub and all ran in to watch it on TV together. Aww. So they got to see them performing on Top of the Pops and then got back in the bus and continued on. So That's really cute. Very exciting time for them. And this would be ultimately the pinnacle of their career would be this moment right here. Obviously, they wanted to follow on the heels of this success. Yes. So we get to March of 1985 and they release their next single, uh, let her go, which mm-hmm. is awesome. Go to YouTube after this and give it a listen or wherever. Did it's interesting? Did you read up on this decision to have this be the next single? No. Jill was totally against it, and oh. she thought they should go with something a little darker and wanted to to kind of show the other side of their music, but kind of got pushed over by it and felt like this was a misstep. And I don't know. To be determined, right? (laughs) Okay. So after that, the next very next month, they finally released their album. Okay, so so this is it. Their self-titled album. Yeah. And you've got to realize how quick the turnaround is here. They've just, in less than a year, like, exploded. Yes. And they're now releasing their first album, uh, which is self-titled. And they also dropped another single, and you got to remember, in the 80s, singles were different than they are now. They were kind of a big deal. This single, Who Knows What Love Is, great single, month after their uh, album was released, was produced, one of two tracks produced by Phil Thornalley or Thornally. Mm-hmm, I mean, the Cure, yeah. Yeah, so he produced The Cure's pornography, but he also played bass for the band mm-hmm. for a year and a half. Yeah, that's when also, Simon left. <laughs> also, if you're a 90s kid, he produced Natalie Imbruglia's Torn. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know if we have any of those fans listening. I don't know. I just saw it on the fun facts and was like, Hey, no oh. shame, though. If that was your thing, good for you. She's already torn. <laughs> oh, yeah, Mariah. No, it wasn't, me. It wasn't my thing. But the band released their fifth, fifth single, a cover of Dolly Parton's Jolene. What do you think of this? I dug it. Why not? I really liked it. I mean, I've, the only other cover I think I can think of is the White Stripes. Oh, yeah. I would also take good. this a million times over that. No way. Just I'm, take them both. It was fine. But this one, I, I really enjoyed it. I don't put know. Put one in your right pocket. Put one in your left pocket. It's great. And it's straight great straight your way. Uh, so they released that <laughs> in September in, of 1985. So uh, like six months later, it was released in the UK and Japan. Yes. Let's go back to Japan. Okay. So at this point, they weren't really like killing it in the UK. They were popular in Japan. That's an understatement. They did all right. (laughs) They became like cult phenomenons in Japan. Yeah. So I'm Rose from Strawberry Switchblade. And I'm Jill. Hello. And we really... I'm really glad to be in Japan. Yeah. It's great, and somebody's going to take us out afterwards. (laughs) Like, they took off. And this is one thing that can't be overstated. As we talk about that, you know, Tom Waits, I'm big in Japan. But what (laughs) happened is, they, like, really became big in Japan. 
like huge, huge because of their their look. Like the Japanese flipped out. I mean, they didn't even they just stopped releasing singles in the UK and only released them in Japan because that's how popular they were. I think actually Tom Waits wrote wrote that song for <laughs> Strawberry Switchblade. I wouldn't. Uh, it would be so great if one of them claimed that. Yeah. Well, just... there was outlandish claims like the. Uh, what is the thing that Gwen Stefani had? Harajuku. Harajuku Girls, that the foundation was in this look of ribbons and flowers in the hair and all the like little dresses and stuff because this hadn't really existed. And then they came over and all of a sudden this was the thing. So still that still lasts to this day. It's and really honest, weird. Honestly, though, their music, too, seems like it's from an early 90s Japanimation. I 100% agree with that, too. Yeah. When I listen to them, I often think that. Like, they look like the pop stars of perfect blue like that same idea yeah yeah absolutely i thought of perfect blue so many times so when i listen to some of the stories that they tell especially rose she's i love her she's quirky but you know take it with a grain of salt because they've lived a crazy life i do i do think that their their influence over japanese culture was a little insane like a little bonkers it's i mean if if you're japanese and you're from the 80s Tell us. Let us know. Send us a message. They were, regardless, killing it in Japan. And they released two more singles, Japan only at this point. Ecstasy, Apple of My Eye, and I Can Feel. And again, only released in Japan. Not even their home country. How crazy (laughs) is that? And by the time of the release of the second single, we're basically at the end. It was only Rose. Jill was out. And by 1986, the band was over. That is phenomenal. Yes. I mean, their first single dropped in, you know, the the fall of 84. Mm-hmm. And by early, actually, honestly, by the fall of 85, they were yeah. done. That's... Uh, <laughs> That's quick. <laughs> One insane year. Considering like all the interviews you can watch, I mean, what did they do? Top of the pops. I mean, they just blew Performances, up. interviews. It's ever, like, I think they were just filmed for one year straight. A lot of footage of following them around yep. and stuff like that. People were just fascinated and then they were over it. I mean, yep. an absolute product of the time. So let's talk about that because the album itself is fantastic it really is it's good a good good album and fans of this band that's the number one complaint is like if we could have just gotten maybe one more album yeah which we'll talk about kind of got a pseudo one more album but if we could have just gotten one more album but we didn't it was over and done with so why in the world did they break up so quickly especially because this band was found on years of friendship and they mm-hmm. when you watch interviews they seem like they're just in their own little bubble and you're not going to be a part of it. Like, there's always a, an inside joke, it seems. Yeah, it's like they're, like, sisters. Like, you get a sense that they don't agree on everything, but that they understand the other's personality. Yeah. So I don't know about you, but for me, in all my research on this, this is the moment that I hit a wall, was trying to figure out, like, why did such a really great group that had everything going for them just fall apart right away? Yep. I honestly couldn't find a definitive answer. Like no. I and I dug. You know me. I'll I'll dig I till the you. end of time. I did find a couple little things, but I just don't know if they were really. They have a lot of truth to them. What I did notice that is that both of them were very careful with their words, and they don't they don't speak ill of each other. 
No. And they both mentioned that it's really not useful to either one of them to talk about why they broke up, that they just went their own ways. They had a falling out. You know, they they had difference of opinions and they went on their way. So I appreciate that. I do. Yeah. I was really impressed by that because I figured one of them would be the like disgruntled dish the dirt. Mm -hmm. They they didn't. Yeah. Still to this day. I mean, they you can there's no shortage of interviews for either one of them. No. My speculation, though, is that there were a lot of factors going Mm -hmm. into this. Number one at the top of the list for me would be Jill's agoraphobia. So this did not slow down. It was actually at like in full effect at this point. Uh. The point of she wasn't able to travel to a lot of the events. Her boyfriend would go and like speak on on behalf of the band with Rose. Like they would travel to get. She had a fear of trains, like all this stuff. And so when Rose talks about it, she never held it against her. She said she always supported her. She knew that this is how she was, and she just did whatever she could to accommodate it. However, oh. let's talk about their personalities. Rose is very outgoing, and she wants to be a singer. She wants to be out there, and she's finally getting what she wanted. Jill is very shy, very introverted, and agoraphobic. So I think that this was maybe like... Nobody was prepared for this. Maybe, but I saw several interviews where it felt like Jill almost took over when Rose like fell into a weird hole, mm-hmm. like a weird conversational hole, and Jill would pick it up and be like the one who was together. So I don't know that I entirely agree with that. I would say from the perspective of somebody who is very introverted. Yes, you are. When I need to speak publicly, I just do what I have to do, and I, I'm trying to be pleasant, and then I go on my way. So I kind of identified with her playing the part of, like, I'm not going to waste your time. You're interviewing me. And she seems like a very gracious person. So I think, though, that it it was a problem. It was definitely a problem, and they said that. For her to... Well, agoraphobia to, you know, and introversion are so different. Right, but they can go hand in hand. So okay. a fear of being in public places, that things can happen in public places, and all she's being asked to do is be in public places. Mm-hmm. Also, keep in mind, they relocated to London during this time. Mm-hmm. And Jill, in particular, said she was feeling really isolated and alone. Mm-hmm. They didn't have their friends anymore. Both of them started to kind of develop their own friends on the side. So all of a sudden it wasn't just them. It was like uh, Rose is going out and meeting all these interesting quirky people, which we'll talk about here in just a second, where she's being asked to kind of come on and guest sing for other groups. And so that's happening. And I don't know. I mean, I guess somewhere in there we'll never know because they haven't really been explicit on why they broke up, but they did. And it was... Strawberry Switchblade did not end. It's that Jill left the band. I think that's a distinction to make, too. Well, I watched an interview with Rose after Jill had left, and she kind of vaguely discussed what had happened, and it sounded more like it was the business end of the band uh, had been kind of messy. I think that's another component. Like, sure, uh, Jill had agoraphobia or has. I don't know the status of that situation, but... She was making it work. It does sound like that they were losing creative control and creative freedom. Mm-hmm. And that also at least played a factor in in this whole situation. Uh, and I think that Rose seemed to want more personal creative control. 
So in that interview that I just mentioned, she didn't discuss Jill, but she said she wanted to work with a live band and not producers. Yeah. So it wasn't necessarily something against Jill, but maybe Jill was like, this is my time to bow out. I don't really know. It's, I mean, we're just speculating. So in that interview, she had Rose had tried to carry on with Strawberry Switchblade, create a live band, but it was like a temporary band. And there was a second female lead named Mandy who was kind of like Jill. Yeah, they were... It was weird. And it was all people who were well-established in the music scene. This weren't like random people. No. This was kind of at the time a little bit of a super group too, but it just didn't... It was more of an experiment. And Rose even said like it just... It just wasn't going to work. And they had written some songs that were supposed to be the, the follow-up album that just never came to be. And that's what mm-hmm. they were rehearsing. Also, there was mention, I think with Jill, that there was also now the studio was coming in and saying, okay, we well, need to tone down the look now. Like that was fun while it lasted, but the gimmick's over. And I think Jill took offense to it because keep in mind, this was not a this gimmick her. for her. Still to this day, look at him. This is just who she is. She made her clothes. Yeah, all like of she her did an interview and was like, "I made this out of curtains." Yeah, so I think she also was being offended because it was like, "This isn't a gimmick. This is who I am." Yeah. And if you're not going to let me be who I am, then I'm out. And then ultimately, though, Rose too was really starting to get involved in a whole other scene that was not Strawberry Switchblade. No. She was getting pulled into this whole like neo folk post-industrial scene where people were really drawn to her and she was being asked to come in and start guest appearing. This is in May of 85 while the band is still happening. Mm -hmm. She's getting pulled in. The big one that she got pulled into was Psychic TV where she's kind of starting to do guest vocals and stuff like that. And then that just led to more stuff. So this is happening while the band is still together. So that's why I think that this may have also had a little bit of it is that they're starting to kind of develop their own little scenes within, you know, their friendship. And it just fell apart. Yeah. So Rose was beginning to uh, work with a bunch of musicians associated with Night School Records. Mm-hmm. And like you said, she was working as a guest vocalist for bands like Coil, Current 93, Death in June, Felt, Alex Ferguson, Into a Circle, Megas, Nature and Organization, Nurse with a Wound, Ornamental. <laughs> it just goes on and on. Psychic TV. It's crazy. So she is like really like reaching out in all directions. Perhaps that's because she suspected earlier than, you know, everybody else that things were falling apart and she needed like a soft place to land. So she just put yeah. her feelers out in all directions. I mean, you could look at it a different way and say, that's the reason it ended. I don't know. I mean, who could say? Maybe she knew that things were ending and was trying to find the next place to go. Or maybe she caused some of the discord. I can't say. Yeah, I will say that um, her post-Strawberry Switchblade career makes perfect sense when you go back to pre-Strawberry Switchblade, which was the poem. So Uh at the core, and she's mentioned this, is that her foundation was in kind of avant-garde performance-based music Mm -hmm. and... It's no surprise that she was drawn to the musicians that she was drawn to and that they were drawn to her because the big one that she got involved with right away. So we're now kind of in the Strawberry Switchblade is still a band, but it's falling apart. 
and mm-hmm. she gets involved with Genesis Peorage, who is the head of Psychic TV. He's kind of this founder of, of a lot of industrial music. Also, for all of you fans who are huge industrial fans and and fans of Rose's career, because she has this whole kind of cult status, we can't. This is like another whole episode, and we can't do that. So no. I'm just going to kind of because, do a summary because it is fascinating, and it also extends way beyond the '80s. Yeah. But she did get involved with Genesis. She did. She was involved in the track "God Star," which is probably one of their, you know, best songs. She also, at the same time, in '86, while the band is still together, this started in '85, but to '86, got involved in the whole Icelandic scene, which was another whole subculture. So, the the groups that she was involved with there started inviting her over to meet other people, and. At this time, while she's going to Iceland and working with musicians, this is when Jill, you know, informs her that she's done with Strawberry Switchblade. So I would say that Rose wasn't, you know, hurting for opportunity. Mm-mm. So as you mentioned, in addition to Psychic TV, though, at the time she was working with Current 93, which that was really what brought her to Iceland. And she met a bunch of musicians, including a young Bjork. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so naturally, those two would find each other because they're both kind of cut from the same cloth. And Bjork at the time was with her band, Cole, who was a pre-kind of Sugar Cubes band. And they started working together. Rose and Bjork was working together in that group or kind of that era. And then um, Einer, who was in Sugar Cubes, you, who you know from him, mm-hmm. This is while this is all happening formed a band with Rose and another guy and then Dave Ball from Soft Cell who had just broke up too. They formed a band called Ornamental and released a couple singles including No Pain. This is by like 87. So she's like involved with some really interesting people. Yeah. <laughs> like really fascinating people. Finger on the pulse. Definitely. And it's during this time in Iceland that I've got this week's fun fact. Yes. <laughs> Okay, this is a good one. And this is, I don't question this at all, because knowing the people involved. So she was hanging out with Bjork a lot. Like Mm -hmm. they were becoming good friends. She said that they just had a lot in common. They were being asked to sing together for other musicians. Like they were doing backup vocals on other albums and stuff like that. Like I found clips of them singing together and stuff like that. So they're getting to know each other. They're hanging out. Rose is in a, in a band with other members of Sugar Cubes. And she said that as they were hanging out more, they started doing stuff like going on camping trips and stuff like that. Well, one day they come back. They're all like having a good time. They're in a garden. And Bjork, on a whim, proposes to Rose. And Rose says, sure, why not? This is like 87, 88. And uh, as Rose said, before they could do anything about it, she had to leave the country. But it's always been one of those funny stories that she said there was the possibility that Bjork could have been Miss McDowell. (laughs) But apparently they were just kind of like really fun friends. They all had like this great scene together and they never got to quite work together in the same way after that because Mm -hmm. Rose was invited I don't know exactly what point, but was invited to come open for Bjork. And then her best friend at the time uh, killed himself. He jumped in front of a train and it like devastated her. And she had to basically back away from everything that she was involved in to to kind of collect herself. But in that short lived time, 
it seemed like it was a really fun time to be in the scene of that whole era. So there you go. She was almost married to Bjork, apparently. Well, I mean, that's quite a stretch, but okay. I'll take it. In 93, she worked with Boyd Rice as a band named Spell. They released a cover album for Mute Records. She simultaneously formed a band called Sorrow with her husband at the time, Robert Lee. That band released a couple of albums and a single. So she had that thing like... Uh, like a lot of pots going and she just or whatever you know worked from one thing to the next and never stopped yeah the one that i think maybe is one of her strongest uh groupings would be death in june death in june was a, a great band at that time they were working with her a lot and maybe one of the songs that i knew and i i enjoy the most is to drown a rose So we'll play a little clip just so you know kind of what she was doing post Strawberry Switchblade. So Rose also performed in the band Rosa Mundi and then basically just kind of dropped the charade and began performing under her own name in 2005. Yeah, she was <laughs> She's done like, with it. I've done this. Yeah. Goodbye. It's me. It's time for me. Um, and now you're go- probably wondering, like, what's Jill doing? <laughs> what was Jill? Because Rose was living a wild life. We didn't even get into the whole, like, no. cult of psychic TV, which was like... Oh, wow, could we go on a tangent there? So what was Jill doing, meanwhile? Well, Jill has an art page you can go look at. Uh Uh-huh. So she made art. (laughs) You know, it's maybe not like what I would do, but it's good. She just like settled into the quiet life, I think. She did. And I think that's what's best for her soul. Good job, Jill. But in July of 2013, she started writing with the Shapists, a band. So she got back into music. This band actually includes her daughter, Jessie Frost. Oh, really? Yep. Let's listen to a little clip because it's really good. I love it. So you've got both of them now. Like, mm-hmm. they're still involved in music. They're still really interesting characters when you listen to interviews. They never slowed down. I do love, though, that, you know, Rose just kept going and going. I, I love that Jill came back. Like, she needed her time. I think she, you know, raised some kids during that time, worked on art. But I love that she came back to music because she has a lot to offer. She's a she does. really good songwriter. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, I feel like while we don't know for sure, I would suggest that Rose is an extrovert, Jill is an introvert. Jill had a major extroversion moment and it took her a decade (laughs) plus to recover. I agree. And she uh, is ready again to reach out in her own way. And I, I love her musical offering. I think I admire Rose's, you know, struggle. She, yeah, it never, ever came easy. Like Strawberry Switchblade, sure, they had their moment, but she 
has been climbing. She didn't just go like, haha, I'm Bjork and now I'm rich and yeah. successful and no. everything I do is praised. Instead, she's like, this next project, this next project, this next project. She just kept going. Yeah, and I would say it's only within the last couple of years that she finally got like her proper due, like it as far as her contribution, because last real big thing to mention about this story is the follow-up album to their debut, is there was one planned, mm-hmm. and then they broke up. So what happened with those demos? What happened? That's what that interview that you saw of Rose practicing with a band in 88, uh-huh. that's what those songs were, is that they were the foundation of the second album, and then she realized this is just not what needs to be happening right now. I'm going to go do my own thing. So she actually went through with it and recorded... Those demos, as well as all these other songs that she had been writing at the time. But without Jill. Without Jill. It was her songs. All of her songs. And a lot of the songs on the album are about people that she was involved with in these other bands. And then it took all the way till 2004. Rose releases a solo album called Cut With The Cake Knife, which we have on Uh vinyl. It's really, really good. And it does sound a lot like a Strawberry Switchblade follow-up album. But it was kind of like half and half. And that came out. And then it wasn't until 2015. I think it was kind of like an Uber fan, basically, who worked for a label, said, this needs to be heard because Mm -hmm. it's a great record and got a re-release. And then that's when everybody was kind of introduced to to what should have been the second album in a way and really how great of a a songwriter she was in her own right too because I think it was no question with Jill like she was a really fantastic songwriter but Rose had her own contribution so what's neat is you can go listen to The Shapists and hear what Jill's up to or you can go listen to that solo album actually she's got several now of Rose and see where they went on their own paths but what I love is at the end of it all you can hear strawberry switchblade i know in both of their solo projects it's like they they are so intertwined even if they're not working together still i wonder if they send each other christmas cards i don't know i've always wondered that too and i think that's just i want like a happy ending i want to know that they still are friends and and i would think that they are in good terms because they speak very kindly about each other but they're probably just really really different people i think that's what it is is they met as punks in a club got caught up in this insane scene that blew up and then both were like okay well (laughs) that happened and then just went on and lived their lives best wishes goodbye that is the story uh, a brief overview we'll say of strawberry switchblade brief overview of a brief band if you are a fan of theirs i hope you enjoyed this episode if you are not uh you're welcome you will soon be because they are really interesting There is a lot going on beyond the surface. Really dive into that album because there are some fantastic tracks on there. Not even the singles. Like I would say it's the non-singles that are some of the best songs Mm -hmm. on there. And uh, if you want to check out their solo stuff, I highly recommend it. It's not hard to find. And um, man, what what a fun journey this was. Here we are. Now we all know more. Yeah. Now we're all one big happy family that can go forward with... A bunch of interesting facts to tell at the next party. That we will be the only ones who care about, but still, <laughs> now we know its value. That's the Laser Graves guarantee. You You're will know welcome. facts nobody cares about. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. Well, thanks for listening. As always, if you want to um, check out our back episodes, you can go to lasergraves.com or anywhere and everywhere you get your podcasts. Please, as always, check out our friends. I actually just did a guest spot on Bad Taste Video Podcast yeah. to cover Splatter Farm, a Polonia Brothers early film that I love. That's a whole other side of me that I don't discuss on here. But if you like shot on video horror movies, that is the absolute number one podcast to be listening to. And I once again joined those guys and we had a blast. So please go support them and check out that episode and subscribe mm-hmm. to their show. Uh, if you want to check out what we're doing in addition to this show, you can go to our Patreon. Like I said, it's at patreon.com slash lasergraves where we do a bunch of bonus content. We got Pig coming out. We do. We covered the, the Nicolas Cage film Pig. That should be out any minute now. We did a, a contemporary casuals review. <laughs> that was something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. And at that, we will see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.